When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Math, a channel of the New Books Network. Our guest today is John Allen Paulos, author of Who's Counting? Enumeracy by the same author was first published in 1988. In it, John brilliantly highlighted many of the sorry truths those of us who teach math and science know. Not only can't most people do algebra or geometry, they can't estimate size, they don't understand simple probability and statistics, and they believe in things that make no sense. In Who's Counting, John investigates topics which, like enumeracy, connect with the age in which we live. John, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. John, 30 years ago, you wrote Enumeracy. Not many books on mathematics become bestsellers, and Enumeracy highlighted the simple fact that, as a society, we deal poorly with numbers and numerically related problems. I gather that you feel those problems are still with us. I'd like to discuss by discuss, I'd like to start by discussing a couple of these problems and what you think we can do to improve the situation. The last five or six years have been challenging for a number of reasons. One of these is the pandemic. Do you think we would have handled the pandemic better if we'd been a more numerically knowledgeable society? Uh, Probably, since uh, in the beginning at least, actually for a long time after the beginning, uh, it'd be very easy to handle it better. Uh, But uh, a lot of mathematical notions uh, are are relevant. I mean, just exponential growth. Most people have no idea what exponential growth is. And uh, uh, the fatality rate is the ratio of, fat- of deaths to uh, a- the incident of uh, infection. Uh, but the problem is uh, there that's more than just mathematics. There's the so-called mystery of the denominator, deaths divided by infected. Like how do you, we, we didn't test, so we didn't know the number of defective. Even deaths is a little bit dubious sometimes. Uh, and uh, unwarranted precision is uh, very, was very common. I uh, said, and uh, is, is like, is, is pervasive. And you always hear very, precise numbers that have no meaning. In fact, there are often evidence that the person uh, um, making these claims uh, so precisely doesn't know what he or she is talking about. And uh, just simple things, like there there was an article not that long ago about uh, Massachusetts, uh, which was one of the most highly vaccinated states, and it was kind of, uh, I think it was on Fox News, a ha-ha article that more than half the people in hospitals in Massachusetts had been vaccinated. And uh, so what? I mean, I, I think, imagine there's uh, 
10,000 people in a small community and 9,000 of them were vaccinated and 1,000 of them are unvaccinated. Then uh, there's 100 hospitalizations and let's say 60 of the 60 of the 100 are among the vaccinated and 40 among the unvaccinated. Uh, so what? Uh, 60 over 9,000 is 0.7% uh, of the vaccinated people in this imaginary scenario uh, were vaccinated. 60 divided by 9,000 versus 40 divided by 1,000, a full 4% among the unvaccinated were hospitalized. So uh, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the arithmetic and, as I say, exponential growth. What is an inflection point? I mean, most people, of course, are... Uh, innocent of uh, knowing anything about second derivatives. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in any case, uh, the uh, short answer to your question is yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I like the example that you gave. It's very clear. Um, you also go into politics, an area which mathematicians are sometimes uncomfortable discussing. What impact has politics had on the problems you outlined in enumeracy? Well, uh, certainly it did with... Um, uh, uh, COVID, as I just said, but ideology uh, often affects what numbers will notice. Uh, one's ideology depends what one uh, determines to some extent what we see. It's, it's called confirmation bias. You look for uh, news items that confirm your, uh, your beliefs and uh, kind of ignore those that don't. Uh, politically, Trump thought it expedient to downplay COVID by lying about it. That's a much bigger lie almost. Well, I don't know about bigger, how you compare, but also a very big lie. And the consequence of this is that even today, there's a significant difference in receptivity to the vaccine and to death rates between Republican counties and Democratic counties. But more generally, political affiliations often dictate attitudes towards a variety of issues, important issues, global warming and climate change, uh, uh, gun control, uh, voting procedures, in all these and other uh, very important uh, salient issues, uh, mathematical illiteracy and numeracy uh, does play a role. And it's much easier to bamboozle pe people to uh, use numbers. I mean, uh, you can talk about some well, very minor expenditure of $50 million. It sounds much worse than... Uh, uh, $2 billion, and uh, there's a good fraction of people who say, oh, $50 million. Yeah, you know, it. Um, I remember uh, seeing an example once long ago and far away, asking people that you had a stick that went from zero to a billion, mark where a million is on the stick. And, of course, a lot of people marked a million somewhere in the middle, uh, <laughs> which, as, you know, maybe they were doing it log-based, too, or something like that. But, oh, and I doubt it. No, they have, uh, I, I know exactly what you mean. One of the things that I liked about the book was that you began with a chapter on puzzles, a subject which traditionally appeals not only to mathematicians, but to the general population. Could you describe the classical Monty Hall problem, its resolution, and the COVID-19 variation in your book? Sure. The Monty Hall problem is a, a problem uh, that uh, has been around for a while and baffles people sometimes. Uh, uh, the skeleton of it is there's a game show, there's a host, there's a guest, there are three doors, and the host explains to the guest that behind one of the doors is a brand new car that will be his if he picks the right door. So doors one, two, and three. And um, 
so the, 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 the guest picks a door, let's say he picks door one. Then the host, who knows, be, who knows where the car is, opens another door, but he's careful only to open a door behind which there's nothing. So let's say that the guest picks door one, and Monty Hall opens door three. And he asks the guest, uh, do you want to change your vote? Uh, you pick one, I open three, do you want to change it to two? And many people say, well, it doesn't make any difference. There's two doors. I might, I have just as much of a chance of sticking with door one as I do to switching to door two. But the right answer is that he should switch because there's a one-third possibility he chose correctly to begin with and a two-thirds probability that uh, the car is behind one of the other two doors. But one of them has been open, so that two-thirds probability is now focused on the only unopened door. And so he should switch. That'll raise his probability of getting the car from one-third to two-thirds. But uh, many people opt to, to stick with it. And you can make that maybe more plausible by having uh, ten doors and um, and uh, the, the guest chooses one door. The host opens uh, uh, eight of the other doors behind which the, he's careful there's no car. And, and now do you switch? And you know, now you raise your probability from one tenth to nine tenths if you switch. But anyway, there is a, there are various variations. But uh, it does say something about uh, COVID, uh, COVID uh, precautions. So, if you play the same game, but this time the host is kind of a psychopath and he may, and has dragooned you into the game, and he tells you that behind one of the doors is a, is a gun, a toxic, a, a gun that will spray a toxic spray, a, to, a toxic substance out at you if you pick that door. Uh, so one of the three doors has this gun that, that makes, uh, spews a toxic uh, substance into your face. So you pick a door, let's say you pick door one, and let's say again, the, the host knows where this uh, gun is and he's careful not to reveal it, so he picks door three, should you switch? And now, of course, it's just the opposite. You want to avoid the gun, so you want to stick with door one because uh, at least you have only a one-third probability of being sprayed in the face. And uh, the relevance of this to COVID is you want to limit your, your contacts. You know, you'd rather have one contact than two or three. And again, you can make it uh, more consistent with uh, a COVID council by having 10, uh, 10 doors and you stick with, uh, you open one, or you opt for one door, the host opens the other. You definitely should stick with the first because the whole probability of the other nine doors is focused on one unopened door. So um, uh, it, it's kind of a dual problem in a mathematical sense to the, the standard Monty Hall problem. But I, I, I do talk a lot about puzzles, at least in the beginning, about uh, some common puzzles, some not so common puzzles. But puzzles often contain uh, some mathematical insights that... Uh, get past people's anti-math filter because it seems like it's fun. And, uh, and, uh, that, and that's also, I mean, puzzles, humor, lie in a continuum between uh, serious subjects, math, philosophy, and humor and jokes. And I, I, I like that the interior area between math, let's say, and humor. Uh, 
I still have to do. And I also like puzzles. Yeah, well, I do too. <laughs> I think all <laughs> mathematicians do. You know, as a mathematician, I've long been concerned that pi has a much better public relations department than the number E. And I was glad to see that you had taken some steps to give E the publicity that I feel that it deserves. <laughs> yes, I mean, the E is ubiquitous. Besides being very essential in all kinds of financial matters, I mean, uh, there are um, various uh, situations that lead to the number E. For example, if you just uh, tell people to pick numbers between 0 and 1,000, not necessarily whole numbers, but any number between 0 and 1,000, and keep picking until the sum of the numbers they pick exceeds 1,000, uh, the average number of picks that are necessary for you to exceed a thousand when you're just picking numbers you might pick 386 for 422 and then that third one might go over anyway the average number of picks before the numbers uh, 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 exceed a thousand before the sum of the numbers exceed a thousand is e e just pops up and um, likewise if you shuffle two decks of cards and uh, side by side and turn over the top card of each uh, the probability of no matches at all is 1 over E. It's about 37%. So most of the time, there'll be a match. But again, why does E pop up? And if you look at the number of stars in the sky, there's little scenarios that show that in a sense. Uh, those uh, stars, uh, bright ones, not so bright ones, uh, kind of are code for the number E, uh, given the appropriate backstory. You know, one of the things that I liked about your book is that you discuss a number of paradoxes, some of which are well-known and some less so. I've always found Perando's paradox, even though it's less well-known, to be extremely intriguing. Yeah, it is. It uh, Basically, it describes a game involving uh, coin flips, and uh, it, you use two losing strategies, and you play them simultaneously, you, you play them uh, alternatively. So uh, you, if if uh, you let's say, imagine you have a, a, a steps two thousand uh, step uh, stairwell, and you're you're at zero. If you flip a coin, you go up. You flip a, uh, and you get a head. You go up. You flip a coin and you get, get a tail. You go down. And if you follow two different strategies, both of which would require would uh, lead to you going all the way down, you'd lose. Go down to minus a thousand. But when you play them uh, sequentially and uh, alternate, uh, you'll win. So the two losing strategies result in a winning strategy, which is true mathematically. It's not. It's clear that you can benefit from it. I mean, some traders, for example, on Wall Street, they have tried to adapt this, but there, there are reasons to suspect that you can't. But nevertheless, it, it's kind of intriguing. Yeah. Um, you know, you've given a couple of examples of probability which are counterintuitive, namely the one you just gave and also uh, the one about the Monty Hall problem. Do you have another example? Because I've been fascinated by probability and I love the counterintuitive aspect of it. Yeah, the probability is important because uh, most things in the world are uncertain and uh, we don't really know which one uh, for certain, which one's true, which one's false, but only which one's more or less probable. So how we estimate the probabilities and uh, their interactions uh, depends uh, on how they interact, these uh, various probabilities interact. 
uh, we, we can't really say, uh, say much about it. We, we depend on our initial assumptions, of course, but also on formal probability theories. So yeah, there's a lot of, of uh, counterintuitive results in, in probability theory. Uh, one classic problem is, uh, uh, imagine a household that has two children, and there's a male in this household, and, uh, and you want to know, given that there's a male, what's the probability he has a brother? Well, if you, uh, if you pick from a random household, the probability he has a brother is one-third, not one-half. Uh, there, there's ways to interpret the problem where you get one half, but the, the more natural way to choose the problem, uh, the probability of two boys, given that you have at least one, is one third. But there's something even much stranger. Let's say demographers were to collect data on women in this city and focus on the households with two children, at least one of whom is a boy, but a boy born in summer. So what's the probability of two boys, given there's at least one boy who's born in summer? You, that's natural to think. What does that have to do with anything? But the probability of two boys, given at least one boy born in summer, is 7 fifteenths, not one-third or one-half. And uh, why? You'd have to look at the sample space. It doesn't lend its help to uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a podcast, but nevertheless... Okay. You know, um, one of the things that I enjoyed about reading your book is I found out about things that I didn't even know exist. And one of them was the Randonaut app. What is it and what are some of the surprising discoveries that have resulted from it? Okay. The Randonaut app is, uh, is uh, interesting. It asks people to express uh, an interest, a kind of idiosyncratic interest of theirs. And, uh, uh, they also have a desire to discover more about it. And so people come up, they take their, uh, their data, their height or whatever, and then it spits out, and they put the, they do the various little kind of magical things, uh, they put their fingers on a little device. Anyway, it's fixed, it spits out uh, quantum-generated random numbers. So... <laughs> That are, but that are converted to the GPS coordinates of a, of a nearby location. And uh, the people, the so-called randonauts, are then encouraged to locate the spot and see what it is they can turn up there that's connected to their interest. And the intention might be to find out more about a dead relative or uh, some insight into a drawing they've had or a dream or the answer to a relationship problem, whatever. And there are many cases of seemingly, and I emphasize the word seemingly, uncanny discoveries. So a randonaut interested in, in death comes across a dead body at his location or near his location. Someone interested in travel finds an abandoned suitcase packed with uh, clothes or a woman with many pets find a, finds a sickly cat. But, they, but the thing, like a lot of these uh, kind of random situations that seemingly are significant is they count near misses <laughs> and, <laughs> and everything is a near miss <laughs> so but uh, it people enjoy it so as long as they enjoy it as long as they're not in charge of public policy yeah it just reminds me of magic eight ball when i was a kid that might be part of your past also 
Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) How does probability show up in the justice system and what are some of the problems that arise from incorrect applications of it? Uh, Sure. Well, one very important one depends on the notion of conditional probability. For example, what's the probability that somebody is a CEO of a big company given that he's a male? That's very small. I mean, most males aren't CEOs, so the probability of being a CEO, given you're a male, is small. But you reverse it, the probability of being a male, given that you're a CEO, is very large. Yeah, I mean, most CEOs for, are, are male. Uh, so uh, the order makes the difference. Uh, probability of A given B is not necessarily the probability of B given A, unless the events are what are called independent. But uh, this is relevant to what's called the prosecutor's uh, fallacy in, in law enforcement. Um, and it, it, it depends on uh, this notion of conditional probability. So uh, somebody is innocent, let's say, but they, there's a lot of evidence uh, that are connected to the crime. So the probability of this evidence, given that the person is innocent, could be quite large. I mean, you pick an innocent person, you could kind of frame him and find all kinds of uh, bits of evidence that are unlikely given his innocence. So the probability of innocence of the evidence given his innocence could be substantial. But what's really relevant to law enforcement is what's the probability this person is innocent given uh, this evidence? And that's different. So the probability of evidence given given innocence is much smaller than the probability of innocence given evidence. I mean, a simple example would be uh, there's a crime and they find DNA. So and uh, so a person's innocent. What's the probability he'll, this DNA will be there? Uh, it's minuscule. Uh, but the probability he's innocent given. DNA is there, it could be much higher. He could be a twin a, or a, a triplet. I mean, and they're more, you know, reasonable uh, situations where you have bits of evidence uh, that uh, show that probability of evidence given innocence is much smaller. And the, the prosecutor will emphasize that, the probability of all this evidence being arrayed against an innocent person, that's small. Whereas the defense attorney will focus on the other thing. Given this evidence, what's the conditional probability this person is innocent? So it's, it's kind of a subtle thing. And again, radio and uh, podcasts don't necessarily lend themselves to immediate understanding. But prosecutors and defense attorneys naturally gravitate to the conditional probability that's uh, more consistent with their goals. I agree that podcasts don't lend themselves to this as much as books do. But one of the reasons, in fact, perhaps the main reason that we're having this podcast is so that people get interested in your book, which I seriously feel they should read. Um, I appreciate (laughs) that. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, do you? Uh, one of the ne- the next section that you go into in the book is logic, and do you have some examples of lies told by politicians that can be exposed simply by logic? Uh, that's a good question. I, uh, simply by logic, I don't know. I, well, one thing people do is they confuse uh, a conditional statement with a converse. If A then B, and they'll elide that into if B then A. 
if you're uh, an atheist, uh, if you're a communist, you're an atheist, let's say, at least uh, official, <laughs> official terms. If you're a communist, you're an atheist. But that certainly doesn't mean that if you're an atheist, you're a communist. And uh, any bit uh, of logic that's a little bit complicated, it takes some effort to decode, uh, it's going to lend itself to uh, in, uh, misapprehension. I mean, even just um, uh, denials. You, you should not deny some outlandish allegation against you because it takes a while to decode not not A. It's much easier to just say A, where A is any proposition. Whereas not A, if you repeat it often enough, the only thing or the only thing that gets across is the A part. So you say, I am not a pervert who eats babies. After a while, oh, that Senator so-and-so admitted to it. I heard him on Fox News. <laughs> 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 you know, um, uh, this is a little uh, off the track, but it strikes me that one of the problems that people have with logic is that they've never taken a, a course in basic, you know, in basic first order logic where you learn things like, you know, where you learn, you know, some of uh, Aristotelian logic, you learn, uh, you know, some easy propositional calculus, maybe some uh, truth tables, stuff like that. But most people are just generally unaware of logic, and that's one of the reasons that um, I was glad to see this in your book. I think there, there's more of logic in your book than there was in enumeracy, and logic is something that uh, people, you know, people appeal to logic just like they appeal to, well, the math says, but they don't do the math, and they certainly don't do the logic. At least that's my opinion. No, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah. people are are innocent of, of logic, and uh, if you say converse, nobody knows what that means. It or shoes. Even just, uh, even just uh, that the uh, contrapositive is equivalent to the converse, or to the uh, yeah con- to the original proposition, conditional yeah. statement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, another fascinating thing, and this is this is fascinating for both mathematicians and people who are interested in pub in puzzles, is self-reference. What exactly is self-reference, and what role does it play in logic? Well, self-reference uh, is just a, a reference to a statement itself, a statement that refers to itself. The liar paradox. This statement is false, or I am lying. Or, and uh, Gödel's theorem is not paradoxical, but uh, plays off of that, as does Greg Chaitin's uh, version of the proof of Gödel's theorem, which is kind of a complexity theoretic. And it's based on, uh, on a, a very sentence which uh, Bertrand Russell popularized. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite bits of, self, uh, of a self-referential statement. Um, it, it asks us to consider the following test. Find the smallest whole number that requires, in order to be specified, more words than there are in this very sentence. So find the smallest number that uh, requires more words than there are in this sentence to specify. So you could say the number of hairs on my head, the the number of different states of a Rubik's Cube, or the number of orderings of 10 decks of a card, or the speed of light in millimeters per decade. Each specified using no more than a number of words in the sentence, some particular whole number. But the paradoxical nature of the test is, is becomes a little clearer when you realize that the peri very sentence itself specifies a particular number that by its very definition 
the sentence contains too few words to specify. It says, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a little bit of a simplification, but it's, it's not quite identical, of course, but it's suggestive that uh, the following situation, you're a short person in an elevator in a very tall building with a bank of buttons be, before you, and the task is you must press the first floor that you can't reach. <laughs> so uh yeah no self-reference uh, i mean as i say girdle's theorem uh, incompleteness theorem uh is not paradoxical in the least but it, it does have uh you, you number the statements and there are statements that refer to themselves via this numbering and greg chayton uh, uh <clears throat> showed that uh, you can't prove something that's more complex in the sense of a uh, very precise sense of complex than is the, uh, the uh, uh, axiom system yourself. You, you can't get 10 pounds of theorems out of 5 pounds of axioms. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I like that. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, it, it, it does per- pervade a, a lot of logic. And uh, you're, you're right, a, a little bit of propositional calculus, or even predicate calculus, people that are even worse than they are with, uh, with notions of propositional calculus uh, can't really handle quantifiers. Uh, they negate their exist by saying for all. Yeah, and, oh yeah, that, <laughs> there's a lot of that going on. <laughs> yeah, or even modal logic. I mean, so yeah, so it's essential, but unfortunately it's not very widespread. Um, what can we learn from the statement that the application of homeopathic remedies and other alternative treatments is often followed by complete remission? Does this statement apply to ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? Uh, to some extent, yes. It, I mean, it shows the need for, for statistics and double-blind experiments. I mean, look at blood clots. They're early in the, the, vac- the early stages of vaccine distribution. People talked about blood clots and the vaccines were causing them. And, you know, it's not that unnatural to think that there's some connection but until you realize there are 800,000 blood clots approximately in the U.S. annually, and it leads to 80,000 deaths, and most of them uh, women. So uh, apophenia is something that you really have to be afraid of. Uh, I mean, guard against. Apophenia is the perceiving perception of patterns when they're not there. And we're, we're particularly prone to that. We're pattern-seeking animals, as people have said. And we see patterns that aren't there. And one way to see if they're there is to use statistics, double-blind experiments, and, and so on. And, uh, and even just uh, approximations can also uh, debunk a lot, of, uh, a lot of claims. There's uh, the notion of a spherical cow when you're talking about so-called Fermi problems, when you, you want just a rough estimate, an order of magnitude estimate of some quantity. And it, it comes, I think, from uh, Fermi himself, who said, uh, all right, let's figure something out. Uh, take a cow, assume it's spherical. <laughs> <laughs> And it's interesting that vaccine itself comes from a Latin word for cow. Yeah, so, <laughs> vaca. Yeah, right. That's. But uh, yeah, so we uh, we um, we're prone to that, and um, you know we have to guard against. It. I mean, even you know, I mean, it's not just. I mean, even you can be very well educated and still 
uh, in math, science, and, and still uh, be prone to, to this. In fact, a lot of cognitive foibles, uh, you know, I mean, are kind of universal, no matter what your background is. It's a psychological weakness we have that we often have to guard against. Yeah, you know, you have a chapter on a favorite topic of mine, calculations and miscalculations. And I'm pretty sure you had material on this subject in in a numeracy, but you develop it further here. From my perspective as a teacher, I think we've gotten a lot worse on calculation, but we're at a whole lot better in miscalculation than when you wrote a numeracy. How do you feel about this? Uh, it, it's... Uh, hard to say. I mean, there are pockets of increasing pockets of excellence in educational you know, high school and Not so where on. I live. Not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, since the pandemic. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. I mean, there are all these articles about how uh, uh, kids have fallen behind after being out of school for two years. But, um, yeah, it, it's unfortunate. I mean, even, you know, the simplest bit of uh, arithmetic. I, I was uh, taught once uh, a long time ago uh, a, a course uh, to, in fact, when I first came to Philadelphia, uh, to a, a bunch of nurses at a nearby medical school. And uh, I thought, you know, I could start out and doing some interesting stuff. And it turns out I had to talk about percentages and, uh, and so on. And um, I, I, they seemed totally oblivious to the difference between 0.2 milligrams and 0.02 milligrams and 0.002 milligrams. <laughs> and uh, that was, I mean, they were, they, these were nursing students. They were, uh, in general, very kind and caring. But uh, nevertheless, they could easily kill a patient. <laughs> And uh, I'd rather have someone who wasn't so kind and caring, but knew the difference. Yeah, now, now they have uh, <laughs> now they have color-coded vials for the same uh, uh, medicine that uh, maybe helps a little bit. But I had the same problem once. I taught uh, a course at Columbia School of Journalism, and it's arguably one of the best schools of journalism in in the country. And uh, it was kind of based on my book, A Mathematician Reads the Newspaper, and I talked about, all, I thought, I anticipated talking about all kinds of things. But again, I was pulled up short by the fact that they couldn't deal with percentages, many of them, or anything having to do with uh, probability. You had to start with, you know, very basic stuff. And there were, you know, marvelous writers, and uh, for, uh to use a term I like, uh, enumerate. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there are lots of kind of common mistakes. I mean, unwarranted precision, base rate, not taking account of base rates. If you ask, uh, are there more farmers who write poetry or more surgeons who write poetry? Most people say, ah, oh, more surgeons who write poetry. But there are vastly more farmers than there are surgeons. So it turns out that there are most likely more farmers who write poetry since I think I don't know, some order, a couple of orders of magnitude more farmers than there are sur- uh, surgeons. And just the simple idea of uh, a random sample it seems beyond people. I mean, you wouldn't estimate the percentage of alcoholics by uh, going to bars <laughs> interviewing people or, or estimate the number of sports fans by attending sporting events or 
figuring out, uh, you know, what, what kind of support is there for stricter gun laws? Uh, I'll go check at the shooting range. <laughs> uh, so sampling bias is... is yeah, well, we see politicians doing a lot of this stuff. Right, yeah. I mean, it's easy to press the emotional buttons. And uh, and as they always say, I mean, statistics are like lampposts. They don't use it for illumination, but to lean against them. <laughs> That's nicely put. You know, we've discussed a lot about uh, COVID for obvious reasons, but there are other places where miscalculations have uh have uh, catastrophic consequences. And one of these is risk versus reward. What are some of the risk versus reward miscalculations that are frequently encountered? And what potential harm can come from these miscalculations? Well, generally, only the the rewards are, are touted. I mean, any new medicine, any new uh, advance in, you know, hair restoration or anything, obviously, you want to sell something, you're going to emphasize the the rewards and minimize the the risk. So it's it's again it's a, a very natural thing to do and um, and overconfidence plays a plays a role here and elsewhere. I mean people are overconfident in uh, in the fa- too many people are overconfident in the face of un- uncertainty. And um, I, actually, there's an interesting observation uh, uh, about precision I tell them if I feel deal with uh, if I teach a course where sometimes I teach a beginning course because I enjoy it or or versus a more advanced course if uh, you express some number with great precision like the volume of, of this block given this is uh, 8.643217 grams people without a technical background, are often very impressed with you. You, this guy really knows his stuff. There's six uh, decimal places there. Whereas if someone with a technical or mathematical background, uh, citing all those, uh, you know, a, a number to five or six decimal places would induce, uh, rightfully, would induce wariness, skepticism. How do you? How can you get that? So. Um, uh, again, because of overconfidence, because of uh, be, being overly impressed by precision, because of gravitating towards rewards, uh, even in the stock market, you, you people always talk about their their gains, they're written about, uh, but not so much about their, their losses. People are quiet. They say, "I lost my shirt the last couple of weeks." Uh, but uh, in Bitcoin, oh, I, they're wonderful. It's the wave of the future. I put all my money, as did Mayor Adams in New York. I don't know if he put all of his money into Bitcoin because it was hyped and the rewards were emphasized, but not so much the risk. And now, uh, what's his Sam? Uh, uh, Bankman Freed. Yeah, Friedman. Uh, right. Uh, Bankman Freed is likely going to jail. So, uh, you know. Wherever there are rewards, there are risks, there's always trade-offs, and uh, again, that's kind of a complex thought for many people. It's, it's just easier to get rid of the uh, negation sign and just look at the proposition. You know, you have a section called There's Nothing Wrong with Fuzzy Math. Um, I think most people hear the term fuzzy math and they don't exactly know what it is. They think, you know, math is fuzzy to them anyway, but could you elaborate on this? Yeah, again, it's connected with uh, uh, precision and, and so on. And when, whenever a number, a poll is given, 
well, not so much polls, but any the, the numbers are given. Maybe 62.8% of people prefer this suitcase, this toothpaste, or the the number of uh, such and such is is X. Uh, and again, people aren't interested in uh, even an informal notion of a confidence interval. That most of the time, the the number of interests ranges between 640 and 920. They'd much rather it be 808. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, again, you you lose uh, persuasive power if you give a a confidence interval. What you gain, what you lose in persuasive power, you you gain in being more reasonable and more defensible. In accuracy, yeah. Right. So people, uh, you know, I, I think conference intervals are a very important notion, should be taught in, you know, elementary school. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that I feel, and you, you and I would undoubtedly feel that should be taught in elementary school, and it's being passed over for stuff that is not worth so much, in my opinion. I, I I agree. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there's also a section in this chapter dealing with both prostitutes and sexual predators. And I was reminded of Freakonomics when I looked at this. Not exactly. These are not exactly common topics in books about mathematics. Perhaps you could titillate our listeners by discussing <laughs> what points you make using these examples. Um. Well, I don't know about titillation, but I, I, I do. I do. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that our listeners tuned in for that, but give them a thrill, John. <laughs> okay. No, uh, prostitution. I mean, uh, is explainable. I mean, uh, for I mean, it, people, women generally do do it for the money, and um, and in general, they they make more money than uh, their skill level would would suggest. Uh, this perhaps is a surprise to people because the prostitutes that are often are sex workers, which is a better term, uh, are profiled in the media or written about and uh, have drug problems, are victimized by their uh, uh, pimps. Or, and um, so the people think that that's, the notion, that's what happens to all prostitutes. That, that's not. I mean... But uh, prostitution is more highly paid given uh, one's uh, skill level, and it diminishes. Uh, the reason is it diminishes one's marriage, woman's marriage chances. So um, there has to be a premium paid, and, um, and there's various articles, uh, employee market concepts, and calculus, and so on that uh, indicate uh, the actual value. And but all all cultures. Uh, uh, have prostitution, and it depends on the different whether, uh, to some extent, whether wives are are uh, treated with greater respect or greater equality uh, than in cultures that don't. If they are, then uh, women are giving up a lot to become prostitutes. If uh, whereas if uh, wives are treated with disdain, uh, they're not giving up very much. There'll be more prostitution. Also, people, women move away from home because they don't, they want to avoid the stigma. There's always more prostitutes away from home. Also, when there are uh, natural events that lead to more men than women, like war or disease or some kind of, you know, calamity, prostitution will will, uh, increase. And um, as, and there are lots of just, uh, you know, uh, a sort of surprising little relationships between the rate of prostitution and 
various social levels. I mean, and the, and the articles go back to the 12th century, and they talk about the, Crus the Crusaders as modern sex tourists, which is weird. And um, anyway, I mean, uh, legalizing prostitution, uh, sex work, I, prostitution has a connotation that I don't like. I mean, sex works better. And uh, I think regulating it strictly, strictly enforcing laws against trafficking, pimping, child prostitution, public nuisance, and so on, and <clears throat> improving <clears throat> improving the economic prospects for women seems to be a greatly preferable approach uh, to um, sex work than moralistic uh, denunciations. Uh, yeah, but you're not going to find a whole lot of that in certain segments of uh, the country, sadly. Um, you know, one of the things that I really liked about your book is that there are things that turn out to be topical that possibly you didn't realize how topical they would be at the time you wrote them. And one of them was uh, ranked choice voting. How does ranked choice voting, which recently put in an appearance during the midterms, serve to reduce extremism? Well, there are lots of um, of ways of uh, determining the winner of election. I mean, ranked choice. Uh, uh, <laughs> let's go back to the. <laughs> excuse me, I have a little bit of a cold. Let's go back to the two sixteen uh, two thousand sixteen Republican uh, primaries. Trump uh, was the best known and uh, got you know many people uh, wanted him obviously, but he was also even then despised and and uh, hated, for lack of a better term, by, by many Republicans. Uh, but there was no middle ground. They, they weren't, people weren't asked to rank the candidates. And if they were, many candidates that didn't do well would, may, might, be, might come in right after Trump in preference, and Trump, outside of the people who really like him, would, would fit down below in the ranking. And the way rank voting votes, um, works rather you get rid of the candidate with the fewest first place votes and redistribute his votes and move everybody else up <clears throat> and, um, and then repeat that again uh, get rid of the candidate with the fewest uh, the remaining candidate with the fewest first place votes uh, that redistribute their votes and move everybody else up until somebody's left but um, now, what this does is it gives more weight to people in, in the, the center, the people who aren't uh, uh, loved or hated, but who are viewed as competent and okay and reasonable candidates. So, uh, so does what's the so-called border count, where you assign points to the first place vote, second place, third place, depending on how many people are running, and you count up the number of points. So again, it gives more weight to the uh, you know, mid-level uh, uh, candidates who are neither uh, hated nor loved. And uh, that's, uh, that's been uh, successful, I mean, in various state races in, in Maine and in Alaska, they use ranked choice voting, and um, both, in both cases, reasonable candidates won, <coughs> excuse me again, and unreasonable ones, at least in my opinion, lost. And there's also approval voting and so on. And, uh, I mean, think of maybe an analogy that's relevant. Think of temperature. Uh, do you get, uh, if you just know the high temperature for a day, that's, you know, useful information. 
Well, if you take uh, the average temperature for the day, that might be more informative. Uh, and um, in, in a sense, ranked choice voting, board accounts, approval voting, various other ways of determining winners uh, do put more weight on kind of the average candidate uh, or the most acceptable candidate. And uh, Trump clearly wasn't. So we're, we're uh, some other ranked choice voting, for example, or board account voting was, uh, if that were in effect in 2016, he might very well have not gotten the Republican nomination and then the uh, presidency, which is another failure of the voting system, the electoral system, since uh, Hillary Clinton got, got a larger popular vote than did, uh, as as well known, than did Trump. Yeah, and uh, I have to say one thing for ranked choice voting. Um, I think my politics align with yours, and I was sort of happy to see ranked choice voting kick out Sarah Palin. Yeah, no, I was happy as well. <laughs> um, why does America have so many red and blue states and so few purple states? Well, it's a difficult question, but there, there's a, <clears throat> a model I discuss in the book. Um, you, you look, I mean, uh, people are randomly distributed, let's say, in a circle. Voters in a county or in a country are randomly distributed in a, <clears throat> in a circle. And uh, they generally vote in the way their not-so-immediate uh, neighbors vote. And they go out, maybe 10 people on either side, and kind of measure that, how many people are for candidate X or Y, and they'll adjust, in general, adjust, be influenced at least, if not adjust their vote to accord with the maximum if you go out, you know, again, metaphorically speaking, 10, 20 people on each side. And um, if you keep on doing that, you, uh, people decide not to go out that many places because they're in pretty good agreement with the eight people on either side. And um, again, I'm not doing this justice, but uh, uh, you can, the, the model suggests that if you check the people related to you nearby, in nearby town, nearby locality, uh, there's be a natural tendency. People have simulated this model, which I'm not explaining very well, uh, and it leads to almost to very often to almost purely red contiguous regions, or almost continuously, uh, almost completely blue contiguous region, and it just kind of develops naturally, and um, and so. Uh, I mean, uh, kind of extrapolating, extrapolating from this model, and the computer model is, is more precise, uh, it, it leads to red and blue states and uh, fewer purple states. And um, that's uh, unfortunate, I think. I sort of wonder if this is related to streak hitting, the phenomenon of streak hitting where all of a sudden a batter who's batting 250 hits hits something like 425 for 10 consecutive games and then dips down to 150 for 10 consecutive games rather than just sort of hitting 250 throughout the entire season. Yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, that's a hot hand phenomenon. Many, many people are convinced that uh, there is a hot hand, although there's precious little evidence for it when people look. But uh, I don't know. I think that might be a distinct phenomenon, but I, I don't know. But it is interesting to, to model these situations. And uh, 
I mean, well, one downside of doing so is it, it seems almost uh, deterministic, and, uh, and, and uh, you'd like to think that people weigh the evidence and, uh, and, uh, and not just uh, look at what their neighbors uh, are, are doing and uh, go with that, generally speaking. I mean, at least, I mean, I mean the thing, it also I mean, it overestimates that we sometimes overestimate the the redness of blueness. I mean, even in in Texas, there, I mean, or Utah, there there are millions of Democrats, and even in New York, there are millions of or California, millions of Republicans. In fact, the the reason the the Republicans managed to take over the House is wasn't because of a Southern state. Uh, it's because of New York State, because. Uh, the candidate for governor, Zeldin, did very well, even though he lost. But in doing very well, he brought along four Republican congressmen and flipped the four districts. And uh, if he hadn't done that, uh, Republican, the Democrats might still have the House. Yeah, you so, know, there's an interesting example of numerical, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, unfamiliarity or stupidity, uh, because I heard on, I was listening to the news the other day, and somebody brought that up as a point and said that if uh, the fact that these four seats um, flipped from Democrat to Republicans reduced the Republicans' margin, well, a Republicans' margin was eight. And so if they'd flip back to, uh, uh, if they'd flip back to Democrat, the margin wouldn't have been reduced to four, it would have been reduced to zero. Right, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> simple arithmetic that people don't get. Yeah. So the, the, there's more purple, uh, even in both red and blue states, than, than people acknowledge, uh, which is kind of uh, hopeful. I mean, except in New York. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I was going to say I uh, um, we're getting close to the end, but there was one question that I wanted to ask you that I think is very intriguing because I wrote a book once which uh, in which I discussed numerology and how did numerology put in an appearance after nine eleven? Oh, uh, after nine eleven, there was a spate of articles uh, uh, trying to link nine eleven, which. Uh, appears everywhere. I mean, you look anywhere, the New York State Lottery, uh, Johnny Unitas's uh, jersey number, uh, almost anything. And then people, you know, searched, like, like the Randonauts, uh, counted near misses. So any any time there was a 9-11 that you could somehow draw a zigzag line uh, linking it to some event in the real world, people did. Again, apophenia run rampant. And... Uh, there was no justification for that, but I mean, uh, Nostradamus and all kinds of uh, uh, books and all kinds of uh, addresses and uh, lottery numbers uh, uh, were, were brought in. And, uh, you know, you, you can't convince people it's not important. I mean, people bet on, on, the, on the lottery as well. John, you know, it's always interesting discussing the books that you've written with you. Um, and I'm sure that probably some of our listeners would like to get in touch with you. How do they do that? Uh, they could uh, reach me via Twitter. Uh, John Allen Paulus is my, my name there. That's out of my handle on Twitter. They could go to my uh, webpage, which, again, uh, is uh, johnallenpaulus.com, and my email is there. They could send me a uh, uh, snail mail and a pair of uh, Temple University, 
And um, yeah, I, uh, I, I welcome uh, inquiries and um, I can also buy my books, including Who's Counting, which is out now. <laughs> and <laughs> it would make a nice stocking uh, stuffer. Yeah, right. <laughs> Actually, better than, a stocking, sorry, better than a stocking stuffer, it's a serum stuffer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I hope you have another book on the horizon because I always enjoy talking to you about it and I always enjoy reading your books. <laughs> 